welcome back to the wrestling room and welcome back to our journey through the book of Acts. Now, we're not moving as fast as I thought we were going to be, but um, that's okay. I'm trying to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And before we know it, we're going to be charging through the book. But I've felt in my study this week that there were some things I needed to share from the outset that were so vital to understanding how did this church grow our, this is our mother church. This is our history. This is from whom we have come. We need to know the dynamics and be clear on what was going on in the hearts and minds of the people of that early church so that God could work through them the way he did. And so the message I'm going to share right now is very different than what I thought it would be even 24 hours ago. So uh, bear with me, walk with me, I trust the Spirit of God has something for us. I know this is a very personal message to me, and uh, I trust that you will be encouraged and inspired and challenged by it as well. So I'm going to pray, and then let's dive right in and see what God has for us uh, today. Jesus, Jesus, we, we just set this message, set this time before you as an offering, as a sacrifice, as worship to you. God, use me as I teach. May you open the hearts and minds of those who are watching and listening. And Spirit of God, together may we grow. I pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Romans 12.2. I want to frame everything we do from that verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is this talking about? This is talking about paradigms, the lenses through which we see the world, because how we see the world literally determines how we live in the world. And what this passage is challenging us to do is to be transformed in the way that we see our world. The Bible calls this revelation. Revelation. When we see something we've never seen before, when God illumines and enlightens our heart and our mind supernaturally to see life through his eyes, through his perspective, it's called revelation. You could call it a paradigm shift, a shift in the way we see life, and it's transformative. That is what Romans 12.2 is talking about. That transformation comes when there's a paradigm shift, a revelation of God where he stamps upon our hearts, shows us something new that we've never seen before. That is what happened to the disciples dramatically in three different ways. We're going to talk about the next three weeks to transform them and prepare them for what was coming, the leadership of this fledgling baby church. <laughs> How we see the world dramatically impacts how we live in the world. Let me tell you, let me give you a story that illustrates this. This is out of print, uh, Proceedings Magazine, the magazine of the Naval Institute. Here's the story. A battleship had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all the activities. Shortly after dark... The lookout on the wing of the bridge reported light bearing on the starboard bow. Captain asked, is it steady or moving astern? Lookout replied, it's steady, Captain, which meant that they were on a dangerous collision course with another ship. 
The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship. We are on collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Well, back came a signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. Well, the captain snapped back, send. I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. And he spat out, send. I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. Back came the response. I'm a lighthouse. And the story ends with the simple phrase, we changed course. <laughs> we changed course. And today we want to talk, talk about how these disciples changed course because they saw themselves dramatically differently. The first revelation they had was a revelation of themselves. Now let me give you just a bit of a background of the book of Luke and then we'll dive right into this in just a moment. Luke chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Let's just read this, these two verses and then uh, outline what we're talking about. Here's what it says from Luke to Theophilus. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So I'm just going to stop right there. This first account, which was the book of Luke, talked about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Brothers and sisters, Luke is just the beginning. Movement number one, Jesus comes from heaven to build his church. He is the foundation. His death purchases, purchases the church. But movement number two is the book of Acts where Jesus returns back to heaven, to the war room of heaven, where he is overseeing the movement and the building of the church. And he's working through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we'll talk about in a couple weeks. And he does this until he comes back again. So book of Luke, movement number one. Book of Acts, movement number two. First half, second half. Jesus declared, and we talked about this last week, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Strong, bold declaration. Has that proven to be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. 1,800 years later, one of the great military commanders and military minds of all of history, Napoleon Bonaparte, said this powerful statement. He said, I search in vain to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Nations pass away, thrones crumble, but the church remains. But the church remains. And that's the big picture, and it's grand, and it's glorious. But I want to get down kind of into the weeds, down in the dirt with the disciples, because before Act 2, the book of Acts, at the very end of Act number 1, the book of Luke, on the night that before Jesus was going to be crucified, the disciples are absolutely clueless. They're clueless. They are so far from being on the same page with Jesus, they are literally out to lunch. What in the world happened between that point and the beginning of this, the powerful explosive beginning of the new church? Something dramatic happened. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 
this is what happened. These disciples had a dramatic new revelation of themselves. Of themselves. Now, before we jump into that, I want to make something very crystal clear, and that is this. Jesus had done his job perfectly. The preparation of Jesus was comprehensive. He had done a thorough job of preparing these men for battle, so to speak. He had modeled for them consistency, humility, gentleness, compassion, Forgiveness, faith, prayer, sacrifice, strength under fire, singleness of heart and mind, unwavering conviction, and so many other things. Jesus had modeled those, and then he had mentored them in preaching and in teaching, in praying and in healing, uh, in spiritual warfare, and then in service to any and all in any and all situations. I mean, Jesus had mentored them thoroughly. He had also taught them about marriage and divorce, lust and anger, prayer and fasting, money and giving, heaven and hell, leadership and servanthood, loyalty to the Father, how to love and forgive our enemies, blessing and cursing, judgment and condemnation, giving and receiving, hypocrisy and self-righteousness, faithfulness, repentance, self-denial. That's just a start. In those three years that Jesus was with them, he poured, he poured into them. From a logistical standpoint, they were prepared. They were, from all, for all intents and purposes, a spiritual Navy SEAL group. They were ready. They were ready. The preparation of Jesus was comprehensive. He did his job beautifully. But there was a problem. There was a defect in the plan. There was a fly in the ointment, so to speak. And here it was. The program of the disciples was contradictory to the program of Jesus. They had a different agenda. When they linked up with Jesus and began to follow Jesus, Jesus' plan was not their plan. The battleship was at odds with the lighthouse. And what I want to do is walk through different passages in the book of Luke, just looking at quick snapshots to give you a sense of the movement of their hearts, where their hearts were, right up to the point of the crucifixion of Jesus, and portray for you the divine moment when everything changed, when everything changed. So here we go. Luke chapter 9, verses 42 through 46. Let's start there. Luke chapter 9, verses 42 through 46. The context is that Jesus has just cast out a demon out of a young boy and the people are ooing and aahing and the authority of Jesus has just captivated their hearts. And in the midst of all the people, of course, talking about this is the coming king. This is the coming king. Jesus turns to his disciples and in verse 43, it says, they were all amazed at the greatness of God, the people were, but while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples this, and it's so out of the context, it's so out of the ordinary, they're ooing and aahing the people are, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. 
And when Jesus said that, the disciples looked at him, but they had no, no idea what he was talking about. It says in verse 45, they didn't understand this statement. It was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this statement. They, they let that statement go in one ear and right out the other. They had no clue what he was talking about. So much so that in verse 46 it says, And an argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. So Jesus has just dropped a hint that no, the, 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 the kingship that the people are longing for him to have, that is not the next thing on the agenda. There's dark days coming. The disciples look at him, it goes in one ear, out the other, oh, right over their heads, and they start debating who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. They missed it completely. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, verse 47, took a child and stood that child by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is the greatest. Essentially, Jesus is saying, guys, my kingdom is an up-and-down or upside-down kingdom. It is flipped from what you're thinking. This is just a hint. I'm dropping a hint to you guys. But my kingdom is very dramatically different than what you guys are thinking. So you'll see this with the ministry of Jesus all the way through. He doesn't lecture. He doesn't, in many cases, never becomes angry at them. But he'll drop hints. He'll, he'll see where they're at. As a, as a group of guys, and then he will interject truth into their situation, and then he'll move on. So go over to chapter 10 now of the book of Luke. Jesus has 70 people, 12 of his disciples are part of that 70, who he is mentoring. And they've been mentored, they've been trained, he has modeled for them all the different aspects of ministry, and now he gives them his authority to cast out demons to heal and to preach. And out they go. And it is a smashing success. It says they cast out, in the book of Mark, it says they cast out many demons. The power of God was coursing through these rookies, if you will, uh, in a powerful way. And it says in 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, I find that interesting. They had seen the lives of many people change, but the one thing that they commented on was the power that was coursing through them as they were casting out demons. It wasn't necessarily about the lives that were being changed. It was about the power they were experiencing. It was about their experience, not the grace of God that was being poured out on the people. And Jesus said in verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, he's, he acknowledges the power, but he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven says, guys, this is not about power. This is about my grace, my mercy to transform the lives of people. In a sense, he's saying this, you are just beggars who have found bread, showing other beggars where to find bread. 
The power and the authority is mine. Don't let it go to your head. Abraham Lincoln made this powerful statement. He said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you really want to test a man's character, give him power. And up to this point, to the disciples, this was about power. This was not about people. It was about power. To Jesus, it was always about people. But to the disciples, it was about power. Who's going to be the greatest? Go over now to chapter 22. This is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. This is during what we call the Last Supper. Now, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Can you imagine that? The night before he goes to the cross, his final modeling of what kingdom servanthood looks like, Jesus washes the filthy feet of the disciples. He breaks bread and he pours wine and they have the first communion supper, the Lord's Supper. And then Jesus reveals to the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. Going to betray him. Heavy, heavy statement. And here's their response. 22 verse 23. And it says, And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. There's a repeating theme. <laughs> this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. They pass over the statement of betrayal almost like it didn't even exist and jump right back into their argument, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus has to say in verse 26, at verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. In other words, my kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Guys, we're going to do things differently in my kingdom. Not so with you, but let him who is the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Upside down kingdom. Different paradigm. <laughs> now jump down to verse 33. And this is Peter. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, Pete, it's not going to be that way, brother. I say to you, Peter, the cock is not going to crow today until you've denied me three times. Denied that you even know me. Peter's paradigm of himself was so skewed. And then Jesus says in verse 37, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled. And he reads a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And he, speaking of Jesus, was numbered with the transgressors. That literally means he was arrested as a criminal. And then Jesus says, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. In other words, it's all going down tonight. All these prophecies are about me are going to be fulfilled. Now jump over to verse 39. And he came out 
and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. And verse 44 says, He was in agony. His praying was so fervent that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from prayer, in his darkest moment... <laughs> In his darkest hour, here's what he found. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. They were sleeping. Peter had just declared, not probably two hours before that, maybe an hour before that, that, Lord, I am ready to go, to both, to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus finds him sleeping when he needed Peter most. Well, let's continue on. This is the night before the crucifixion. Let's continue on, 50, 54, verse 54. And we know this very well. This is where Peter denies Jesus. It says, And having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting amongst them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, another Simon said, You're one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another began to insist, Certainly, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. And Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. That literally means that he cried and wept and moaned and wailed in such a way that it felt like his guts were being wrenched apart. He felt like he was being stabbed in the gut with a knife. So this is the condition of the disciples the night before Jesus is going to the cross. Go over with me to Luke 22, just turn across the page to 22 verses 31 and 32. Here's what Jesus had said to the disciples prior to the betrayal of Peter. He said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What was the Lord saying here? He's saying this, Simon, I have had a conversation with Satan himself. And Satan is begging me. That's what the word means. He has demanded permission that literally means in the Greek language that he is begging me to sift you like wheat. What does this mean, to sift like wheat? Here's what it literally means. Two different thoughts. It means to place the wheat 
in a sieve and shake it violently. But more specifically, it is a picture of threshing or winnowing wheat. Here's what would happen. The sheaves of wheat would be spread out on a threshing floor and then three possibilities. They would be trampled by an ox to break up the stalks from the grain or they would be beaten by wooden flails to break up the wheat from the, the, the stalk from the wheat or a weighted sled that was pulled by animals would be drawn back and forth crushing the wheat. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Satan has literally and is literally Peter and disciples begging me to allow him to trample, beat, and crush you guys. Wow. In other words, Satan is licking his chops over you. He sees all the years that I've poured into you and how you have flailed and failed so miserably. He wants his shot at you now that you have flopped and failed. He wants to rub your noses in it. He's begging me to hand you all over to him so he can crush you like bugs. That is what this verse is saying. That gives an insight into the person of Satan. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says, but I have prayed for you. He says, Satan has demanded, he's begging me to allow him to beat the tar out of you, but I have prayed for you. That word is, I have begged, I have beseeched. It's a, a word of strong praying, counteracting the strong begging of Satan. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm on the other side of the rope and I'm pulling for you guys. <laughs> I'm pulling for you guys. I'm praying. I'm agonizing in prayer for you guys that your faith would not fail. That word fail means fail utterly. In other words, Peter, I'm praying that you will not fall and never get back up again. The word is, is the word, the Greek word from where we get our word eclipse. And the picture is this, I'm praying that the shame and the guilt and the discouragement and depression and despair of your failure wouldn't be so great that it would eclipse your faith. Jesus understood that this failure would be devastating to Peter. Devastating. But I find it so interesting that Jesus did not pray that Peter would not fail, but that Peter's faith would not fail. The failure would be necessary. The failure would be necessary. When Peter went out and wept bitterly, that's when the battleship turned around. That's when the battleship turned around. That is the catalyst and the pivot for this whole story. He wept bitterly. He finally had a picture of who he really was. All of the pride, all of the images of greatness, all of the visions of greatness, gone gone. So Jesus, in a sense, said, so Peter, I will let Satan sift you. I'm going to let him beat on you a bit. I'm going to let him work you over. But I've prayed for you, Peter. And when you have returned, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Be an encouragement to your brothers. Help them remain stable. Help them regain their stability. Help them regain their strength.
It was the failure that turned everything. So I want to give four final conclusions. Final conclusions. Number one, failure beats the pride out of me. Many times, failure is what beats the pride out of me. I can tell you from personal experience that failure will deflate you. It beats the pride out of us. But number two, great failure often results in great clarity. Any good in me is in spite of me, not because of me. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, Paul wrestled with this ongoing battle between his spirit and his flesh. And he said these words, and you know this. He says, I know that no good thing, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present. Oh, I wish to do well. I have a lot of desires. I have a lot of dreams to do what's right. But the doing of the good is not in me. (laughs) Got a lot of wishing, but not a lot of doing. Then he goes on to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he answers his own question and he says, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Failure beats the pride out of me. Failure results in great clarity such that any good that is in me, I know it doesn't come from me. It's from Jesus So that if you look at me and you see anything good, you're looking at Jesus. It comes from him. Third conclusion is this. Great failure produces the way for great forgiveness, which results in great love. Scripture says very clearly, those who are forgiven much, love much. Jesus forgave Peter. He restored Peter. He recommissioned Peter. He forgave and restored all of the disciples other than, other than Judas. And, and, and according to, to, to tradition, Peter was actually crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. That failure of Peter's transformed him. It paved the way for the leader that he would become. He understood there was nothing good in his flesh. He understood that there, if, if there was anything good, it came from the life of Jesus flowing through him. And he understood what great forgiveness felt like because Jesus had forgiven him. He had failed greatly, but he'd been forgiven greatly. He'd been restored and recommissioned. And finally, great failure results in a new paradigm, a new vision. And that is simply this. In the words of John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. I must decrease, he must increase. Had Jesus delegated his authority to these men prior to their failure, what we know as the church would have flopped before it ever started. We would have recreated, Jesus would have recreated what happened in the Garden of Eden. And he wasn't about to do that. He knew that he had to let these men fail. He knew that he had to let Satan beat on them and wail on them and beat that pride out of them. But he prayed, he prayed, he prayed that their faith might not fail. And when they turned again, 
he said to Peter, strengthen your brothers. This is what the Lord showed me this week. I was going to charge right into the book of Acts, but the Lord showed me this. Without the failure of the disciples, there would be no book of Acts. They had to fail. They had to fall flat on their face. They had to have their pride deflated. They had to see themselves the way they really were so they would see Jesus the way he really was. People, the gospel is both bad news and good news. The bad news is that we are sinners. Our hearts are deceitful. They're wicked. They're desperately wicked, the Bible says. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that there's no one who is good, not even one. The Bible says that all of us, like sheep, have wandered away from God. We don't run to him. We run away from him. <laughs> that is the bad news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes after us. He pursues us in all of our darkness, in all of our sin. He comes after us, as some have called him, the hound of heaven. He pursues us. That's the gospel. These men understood the great grace and the love and the goodness of Jesus because they understood their own darkness, their own failure. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, had personally mentored them for three years and they still abandoned, deserted, betrayed, and turned on him. But he still forgave them, restored them, recommissioned them. And, and continue to delegate to these men his authority, his power to turn the world upside down. And they did. And they did. And that is what God has ministered to my spirit this week, is that we have to understand how bankrupt we are without Jesus. If we do not... We will never fully experience the power and the authority of Jesus in our lives. We've got to understand our bankrupt state without the Lord Jesus Christ. Our failure is a gift. It deflates us of pride. It wakes us up to who we really are. It allows us to experience the grand and great and immeasurable forgiveness and grace of God. And it helps us to live with a new paradigm Less of me, more of him. I must decrease, he must increase. And it was with that mindset that the disciples moved into the act number two. And it made all the difference in the world. So I'm going to pray. We're going to be done. Next week, we're going to tackle their next major paradigm shift. This is equally as great. And it's going to be so fun to teach this. So, Father... Take these words, apply them deeply to our hearts. We are so grateful for your grace. We're so grateful for your mercy. We're so grateful that you have chosen us despite our failure, despite our sin, despite the many times we've turned our backs on you, that despite the times we've betrayed you, we've denied you, Lord. I have. We praise you that you forgive us, you restore us, you recommission us, you put us back in the game, and then you use us, Lord, by your grace to touch the lives of other people. It is mind-blowing, mind-boggling, but it's the way you do it, and we accept it gratefully. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your powerful name, amen. All right, get ready next week.
Revelation number two, paradigm shift number two, transformation number two. We'll see you then. Have a great week. God bless you.